Hello and welcome to Free the Seed. This podcast is for anyone interested in the plants we eat. Farmers, gardeners, and food-curious folks who want to dig deeper into the story of where their food comes from. It's about how new crop varieties make it into your seed catalogs and onto your tables. I'm your host, Rachel Holtengren. In this episode, we'll be joined by Dr. Claire Luby and Dr. Erwin Goldman, two of the co-founders of the Open Source Seed Initiative. We'll discuss the importance of genetic diversity in plant breeding, the evolution of intellectual property rights as they apply to plants, and the efforts of the Open Source Seed Initiative to maintain fair and open access to plant genetic resources. Dr. Erwin Goldman is a faculty member in the Department of Horticulture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he has taught and led research in plant breeding for the past 26 years. His breeding program focuses on carrot, onion, and table beet. Dr. Claire Luby conducted her PhD research at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the Goldman Lab and was the first executive director of the Open Source Seed Initiative. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us, Rachel. Yeah, thank you. So maybe we can start pretty broadly. What is the Open Source Seed Initiative for folks who have never heard of it before? So the Open Source Seed Initiative, um, it is a project to basically liberate plant varieties from the constraints of intellectual property rights and facilitate sharing and exchange of crop varieties amongst plant breeders and amongst farmers and gardeners. For those who maybe aren't familiar with intellectual property as it relates to plants and might be familiar with patents for things like electronics or or other physical invented objects, Erwin, maybe you could tell us a bit about the brief history of intellectual property as it relates to plants? Sure, yeah, and I think, you know, I've been fortunate to have a front row seat in that. Um, I've been involved in plant breeding, <clears throat> first as a student, and uh, now as a, as a faculty member for the last 35 years or so. And during that time, I've watched seeds go from something that you would just freely send to somebody, anybody who requested your germplasm or your breeding materials, you would freely send to them. When you say germplasm, what does that word mean? Yeah, yeah. So the germplasm would be uh, the raw material that the breeders are using to develop something. So it's their seeds. It could be cuttings. It could be, you know, if they're breeding a vegetatively propagated species, but just the their raw material, let's say the, the, the unique genetics that they're crossing to improve a particular crop. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we would share that quite freely in the early days. And, and then through the late 80s and into the 90s, I think there became a much greater interest in uh, controlling those seeds or controlling those genetics. And Some of that can be controlled through instruments like the Plant Variety Protection Certificate, which is available through the government. And it is is an instrument that allows the breeder to to essentially protect the variety that he or she develops, but still make that variety available for breeding by other breeders. Then as time went on, people began to pursue more restrictive forms of intellectual property protection which extended to U.S. patents, utility patents, which would cover, in some cases, the variety and what anybody could do with the variety. It might restrict breeding. It might even restrict research on a particular variety uh, to particular traits that became patented, where a particular, very interesting, say, agriculturally important trait might have been patented, which would 
essentially foreclose the opportunity of any other breeder or gardener or farmer to start working with that material in a breeding context. What's a good example of one of those traits that might be patented? Probably one of the best examples of that is the exerted head broccoli case where the mutation or the genetic variant where the broccoli head is exerted, making it much easier to harvest, that trait was patented. And so anybody breeding broccoli anywhere would potentially be infringing on that patent if they were to release their material. And I think that that kind of patent, it has a very chilling effect on the plant breeding community because I think people then start to wonder, well, if my material is infringing, maybe I don't have any what's called freedom to operate. So we as a group became concerned with how intellectual property impinged on our freedom to operate. We were worried that our freedom to operate was being limited by uh, extensive intellectual property protections of all different kinds. In a practical sense, Claire, what's the impact of that impingement? What does restrictive intellectual property protection do to plant breeders? So plant breeding is basically based on selecting plants, making crosses, and then selecting plants with various combinations of characteristics that are beneficial for whatever you're uh, wanting to select for. And you need genetic diversity in order to, to do that. You need to be able to access all of these various potential combinations of, of traits as a plant breeder. Um, we're still trying to figure out exactly the effect that intellectual property rights on plants have had on the actual genetic diversity uh, that are in our crop plants. However, one of the things that we have found is that it is much more challenging to exchange, as everyone was saying, exchange material amongst people. And also, there's this chilling effect of these intellectual property rights on using um, existing varieties. So basically, plant breeding is based on improving variety iteratively over time um, and for different uh, environments and situations, and if you can't access varieties to continue to improve them, then you can sort of stall out. Mm-hmm. So that chilling effect that you talked about on plant breeders and their inability to exchange seeds, what's the fear there with downstream effects? How might that affect a farmer or a gardener or consumers? This can have an effect on basically what genetic diversity is available to farmers, how fast we're making improvements. I think there's a lot of questions that don't have sort of specific uh, researched, you know, answers or tested answers, but I think there's sort of the thought that if you don't, as a plant breeder, have as big a pool to draw from to use in your breeding program, you may not actually be able to make as much gain from selection if you don't have access to those materials. Sort of our whole agricultural system is based on the exchange of plant varieties over time and space, and we should be able to keep exchanging things in order to to continue to, to do plant breeding. Would you say that the slowing down of plant breeding means that farmers have in the future, potentially fewer options of what to grow in their fields? Yeah, and I'm not sure that we can totally say that, you know, plant breeding has slowed down. I think we can say that the sort of the landscape of where plant breeding is happening has changed over time. I think, yeah, I think to a certain extent, it's, it's a food security issue. It's a making sure that farmers growing crops 
in all places have access to to varieties that will perform well in in their environment and making sure that if they choose to save their own seed um, that they are able to do that whereas um, intellectual property rights can can um, infringe upon the ability of a farmer to actually save their own seed. How and I would say too, um, Rachel, that the, you know, as the world continues to urbanize and as the sources of our germplasm, uh, our raw germplasm go away, we as a civilization, I guess, need to hope that we've preserved the useful genetics that are out there from the wild before it disappears. And hopefully we're supporting the gene banks that that hold that genetic diversity. And it would seem to me, with climate change and with all the things we're facing, we want to do everything we can to not just make sure we have that diversity in gene banks, but also that we do as much plant breeding as we can and exchange useful germplasm. And so it seems to me that intellectual property rights sort of go at the future of food security in a, in a way that makes it, makes it more difficult for us as a civilization. So this is a concern. I'm curious about the process of a company obtaining a, a patent on either a trait or a variety specifically. How would a company go about doing that? Well, it's surprisingly not that difficult to write those patent applications. There are several key tests for patentability that the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has, and you have to show that it's non-obvious, and you have to show that you have something novel and useful. One might question the non-obviousness of certain crop patents, but if you are persistent and if you have good legal representation uh, and you have time, because we understand that these patents on crops are taking many years to get through the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, but if you have, on average, say, five years to wait, you can often get some of the claims that you've applied for in the form of a patent. You might not get the broad-based claims uh, which could include the process or the techniques you used in breeding, the traits that you want to patent. But in many cases, people are able to get patents on the varieties themselves that they've developed. And then with that patent, they can restrict others' use of it in many different ways, including breeding and research and seed saving and that sort of thing. It's my understanding that the the argument that companies make is that intellectual property rights are necessary to support innovation given the time and resources that go into developing a new crop variety. Is that an argument that you find compelling or convincing? Definitely. I mean, the cost of doing doing this research and development is very expensive, and intellectual property rights uh, would be one way to recoup some of the cost. However, unlike industrial technologies where you know, the, it's not a living thing. We as plant breeders are working with materials where we require, I mean, we, we have to use other genetics and other germplasm to improve the crops we work on. So in essence, I think if we go down the patent route, we are foreclosing the opportunity to do that kind of crossing that's so necessary. And so it, yes, it can, it can be remunerative for the people that hold the patents, but the downstream implications for us in terms of the crop futures is not so good. And I think it will reduce the number of players involved in plant breeding. Possibly the global consolidation of the seed industry that we're seeing today is not a coincidence that a number of the companies that are involved in this are 
companies that have chemical and pharmaceutical divisions for whom patenting is also very well established. Claire, how did you first learn about this issue? Irwin's talked about sort of having this front row seat for the last 30 years of his professional career. How did you start learning about intellectual property rights and how they apply to plants? Yeah, so I was doing my master's with Irwin at the University of Wisconsin, and that was in plant breeding, and I was also doing a certificate through the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies and as part of that certificate, we we needed to work on a community outreach project. And I had heard Jack Kloppenberg speak, and he's been working on these issues for his whole career for the last 30 years. And he and another lawyer had come in to give a seminar in the plant breeding program and sort of raised a lot of these questions. And I think it sparked my imagination and my interest, and I was in the process of figuring out what I might want to studies for my PhD project. And sort of the culmination of this, I started working with Jack and Irwin had an interest in, in this whole space as well. And we sort of started meeting more regularly along with a number of other people who have been involved um, with the open source project. And my PhD project was co-evolving with this whole open source seed initiative project. And I think I was drawn to these questions um, that the space raises in terms of who can really own a crop variety and questions of ownership, these questions of large-scale impacts on our farming and agricultural landscapes and communities. And that was where my interest came from. And then I sort of just kept digging deeper. And yeah, and it's been a really rich space, really um, rewarding space to work in, I think, and, and get to work with a lot of different people in the seed system. So that's been that's been really fun. So it sounds like the timing just worked out really well for you to start joining the conversations that led to the founding of the Open Source Seed Initiative. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> it was really perfect because we, you know, at that moment, as these issues were crystallizing for us, the opportunity to not only develop a project like the Open Source Seed Initiative, but also to do a graduate research project on that subject to sort of inform some of the work, that was really great timing. So you two have collaboratively developed eight carrot populations that have been pledged as open source. Did those come out of the graduate research project you just mentioned? Yeah, so that was sort of the <laughs> co-evolution of my PhD project and and the open source seed initiative. So those populations came out of this work that Erwin and I did um, looking at using carrot as a model crop to look at all of the commercially available varieties and the genetic diversity in those commercially available carrot varieties and then uh, the phenotypic or visual characteristics of those varieties. Um, And we characterized all of those and then we also looked at the intellectual property rights that were associated with each of those varieties and then using the the ones that didn't have any intellectual property rights associated with them, we characterized them based on market class or color type and then made these eight populations that were then released through the open source pledge. And those are sort of meant to be breeding populations or populations that people can can use to select new varieties that would then also be open source. What would you say your hope for those is now that they're up on the website and, and pledged as open source? 
we've got quite a few different sort of participatory breeding projects that we have been working on with those populations. So people have requested them and we've sent them out. And then a couple of the projects have actually involved people growing out those carrots, doing selections on them for characteristics that they like, and then us helping with some of the crosses and seed production pieces of that to sort of make uh, new varieties out of those initial large crosses. They're relatively diverse populations. You can just grow them as a variety, I suppose, but you can also use them and, and select out roots that you particularly like. So that is already happening. And I think that that was the goal, was to create these populations that would represent the commercially available material, so elite carrot material um, that was available as open source. And just to give you a feeling for this, uh, over the last week, I've, got, I've had two seed requests from two different countries. One came from Germany and the other one came from Pakistan. And these are both from companies in those countries. And they would like, they wanted our carrot seed <clears throat> that we had developed at the, uh, through our, in our breeding program, we had developed a series of inbred lines of carrot that are controlled by the university through its tech transfer office. And they're not patented, but they're, they're licensed. And the license is a form of intellectual property right that controls how those inbreds can be used. So, when the company requests those from me, I mean, we have a series of back-and-forth conversations about the ways that they could use those materials. You know, they're they're restricted from using them in certain kinds of breeding activities, and they have to pay a royalty if they use them. And it works, and we, we ultimately will send those seeds to them. But if the same company or any individual contacts me and asks me for the open-source carrot seeds that we're talking about, I can send them immediately. I can say there are no strings attached. You can do whatever you want with these as long as you don't restrict anybody else's use of them. And there is just a tremendous joy in doing that and being able to provide seeds to people so they can grow them as a, as a variety or they can breed with them or whatever they want to do. It, as a public plant breeder, it gives me great joy to be able to just make those seeds available to the world. And so that's one of the differences between our sort of our licensing model that we use and the open source model. How did you choose the phrase open source? Well, that really came from the open source software movement. And we were, in our early days of this project, I think we were quite interested to know how it had developed there. We became really interested to learn some of the differences between what free and open source meant to the software industry. And we, we modeled our ideas really off of that. I mean, we, we also learned that seeds and the genetics that are encoded in those seeds is a little bit different than computer code in some important ways. But I think the overall concept of open source and the name open source did translate pretty well. What are some of the differences between computer code and genetic code? Well, I guess the biggest difference is the copyright. You can copyright the computer code. And, you know, that's one difference that you can't do with the biological materials. Another thing that we learned early on was that it's, and I want to say it's relatively easy, but an individual sitting in front of a computer terminal with a lot of knowledge can write code. But breeding plants is a very time-intensive labor-intensive, resource-intensive process that can take many years and require fields and greenhouses and specialized equipment. And so, you know, we, we realized that we were in a slightly different space than the, than the code writers. At the same time, I think 
the concept translates quite well. And I would boil it down to tinkering. You can take a set of materials and you can tinker with them and change them. And that change thing then becomes available to the community. Just like if you change the software code and that software code then goes on, the same thing with seeds. You breed something new and then that new material becomes open source for the community to use. So the open source in both cases refers to the commitment of those who use it later on to not restrict others' use of that material, whether it's code or plants. Yes, exactly. I think that's the key is that it's, it doesn't mean that it's free. Okay. You can charge for open source material. You can, you can have a fee for it. You can have a royalty for it. So it can, it can be remunerative just like other crop models and licensing models. But you are agreeing when you use it that you will not restrict others use of it. And then importantly, if you make a cross between an open source variety and anything else, that progeny becomes open source. And so the power of the model is its virality, in the sense that that new progenies become open source, and so it, it grows in that sort of natural way. That commitment to open source and to not restricting that material, that's embodied in the open source pledge. Could you tell me a little exactly. bit about yeah. how that pledge came to be? How did you guys end up on that, I guess, as opposed to other ways of expressing that same vision? Yes. Um, I mean, as Erwin was saying, this idea came from the free and open source software movement, which uses a copyleft type of license. So basically attached to all of that software code, there's also a license um, that says you can do anything with this code. You can use it as is. You can improve it so long as this code and any of its derivatives also remain freely available for others to continue to use for those same purposes. So we initially developed a legally defensible license for seed. But as everyone was mentioning, seed and software do have some fundamental differences. Um, One of the most fundamental being that seeds are actually alive and actually physical objects. (laughs) that grow and can reproduce themselves. And so the seed company people that we were working with balked at this license. They said, hey, this license is eight pages long. It's totally impractical to put on a seed packet. And it was also pretty indecipherable to anyone but a lawyer. It was very hard to figure out what this eight-page document was really saying. So it was just very impractical in terms of actual exchange of seeds. So we decided, hey, let's just boil this down. What are we really saying here? And we came up with the pledge, um, you know, which is two sentences long and basically says you're allowed to do anything with these seeds given that you don't restrict anyone else's ability to use these seeds or their derivatives, that people have freedom to continue to use them. The other aspect being that licenses are a form of contract law so that um, in order for them to be Uh, effective, both parties have to agree to the contract. And as everyone also mentioned, software is protected by copyright. And sort of that license is on top of a copyright. So the person that's releasing it can say, 
this is my code, I'm releasing it in this way. But with seeds, if you don't get a plant variety protection certificate, you don't actually have any claims to ownership. So the license is the only thing. But if it doesn't get transferred, as I think it would be quite easy for that to happen with seed, right? It's very easy to hand off a few seeds to someone without any paid license attached. It sort of got into this whole space of sort of impractical for what we were trying to do. So we've developed this database and registration system for open source varieties and then having them be distributed with the pledge, which we've found um, has been a lot easier. People understand what that means when they read it. Can you tell me a little bit more about that database? Yeah, so how Aussie is currently set up is we have a committee. It's called the Variety Review Committee. And people who have done selections or plant breeding on a new variety can submit that variety to the Variety Review Committee. So there's an application process and it involves having a pretty extensive conversation with um, the committee and the breeder about that variety to sort of determine, you know, what are the parents, what kind of selection was done, what is this variety, what it, what makes it something different. And once it is accepted as open source, it then goes up uh, into our database with a extensive description of the variety, also where that variety is available. So we don't distribute seeds, but uh, we work with seed company partners um, that do distribute seeds. So the sources of all of the Aussie pledged varieties also go up on that database. So um, it serves as sort of a form of registration that that variety was developed by so-and-so, and it has these characteristics, um, and it's available in these places. How many varieties have been pledged to be open source? So there are now over 400 varieties of over 45 crops. Wow. So quite, quite a few, yeah. How we many? We work with... Um, oh, oh I, I think you're going to start answering the question. Oh, yeah, we work with 58 seed companies um, and 38 plant breeders. So we've grown quite a bit just in the last few years that we've been around. I would like to shift a little bit and talk about your vision for the future. So how would you describe the future that that you hope Aussie contributes to? Well, um, you know, for me, the, the thought of developing a very substantial catalog of varieties. So right now, let's say we are over 400 varieties, maybe within a few years' time, you know, maybe we'll have a thousand varieties of more than 50 different crops. That catalog represents a very significant pool of germplasm that remains in the public domain and that hopefully in perpetuity can not only be, not only exist as varieties, but will expand because people will use it in crosses and those progeny will become open source. So to me, that repository or that collection or that catalog of genetic material um, represents a very unique genetic resource that we're contributing to, to the community. And so curating it and enforcing it and marketing it and publicizing it and doing all the things that you know would be needed to ensure its continued use, to me, would really be a wonderful um, activity for us. Maybe if we haven't mentioned it already, uh, the Open Source Seed Initiative is a 501c3 now, and so it is a nonprofit entity, and I would say it's largely an educational and outreach organization. And so in the sense of it contributing to the community in terms of the, the knowledge of and the collection of open source seeds and how they're used and what they can be used for is very, very exciting. 
those are all very in line with what I also hope for Aussie in the future. Um, one other thing is kind of this educational component of getting more people engaged and also getting more people doing plant breeding in more places. Yes. Um, I think that is one of the things I would love to see this project inspire, kind of a more decentralized plant breeding system, having people making tinkering and doing making selections and doing breeding in, in all different parts of the world. Yeah, I love that idea. I, I love that it... Um... They have a resource now that they can start with, and it's true that there were seeds, always seeds available to them in various ways, but now there's a dedicated resource that they can go to and a, a collection of several dozen breeders with whom they could probably interact around this material. If someone were interested in getting started with a plant breeding project just with seeds that they had grown on their farm or in their garden, how, how would they know whether that material had intellectual property rights associated with it? Boy, that's a great question, Rachel, because it's not always apparent. And in fact, even the seed catalogs from which they would buy their seeds might not list whatever intellectual property rights the variety has. So it often becomes a detective project for somebody to try to get information on how their variety might be protected. And the problem with that, a lack of transparency, is that if you started a breeding project with the material and went several years down the road only to find that the material wasn't available or that you did not have freedom to operate with that material, it'd be quite, it'd be quite upsetting. And so, you know, another, maybe another direction for Aussie is to try to help with the transparency issue so that it is clearer for seeds that are sold that their um, restrictions are listed because I think that will help people, help guide them as to whether they can use that material or not in a breeding program. Yeah, that is that is really interesting just how much work it can take to get to the bottom of, of what the restrictions might be on a, a given variety if it doesn't say in the catalog and you you know don't find that information easily looking on the seed packet. Um, right. Does that just take a long search in the U.S. Trademark and Patent Office website? I mean, that might be one of the places, but more often than not, the intellectual property will be in the form of a bag tag, which is a set of text on a seed packet or in a seed container, which has its own contractual um, obligations. So it'll say something like, by opening this packet, you're agreeing to the following conditions. And that may have come in a larger seed container that was then opened up and repacketed by a seed company that sold small packets of seed and did not pass along those particular restrictions. So I think it's it's really tough for, for a gardener or a farmer or a plant breeder to know now exactly what the terms are for the seed. And this is, you know, we hope one of the things that the Open Source Project will do is make it very clear that at least for these particular varieties, the um, expectations of what you can do with them are very, very clearly spelled out. As for the more complicated ones, I do think that this is an area that we want to contribute to in the future, and there might be several ways we can help improve the transparency. Those bag tags that you just mentioned, that's sort of what you were emulating with, with the pledge that is printed on <laughs> yeah. the seed packets now? Right. We were, we were inspired by that in a sort of an interesting way um, by saying, we want you to say when you open this packet, you have the full rights to do whatever you want with it. 
and don't restrict anybody else's use. And so in that sense, the pledge that we have is a kind of bag tag that uh, allows for open access, and we wanted to use it in that way. By the way, um, we've explored this, and we believe that that pledge is legally enforceable. You know, it's a form of a contract. It's quite specific, and um, we hope that uh, people will treat it as such. Have there been examples of that being tested? Not yet. And, you know, frankly, as a as an educational and outreach organization, we want to put our energies in those two things, not in uh, litigation of any kind. And we've been very fortunate that the community has embraced this and treated it respectfully. But we're aware that there may be times down the road where we may have to, you know, more carefully guard it and protect it. And I guess we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Uh, but the good news is that the pledge isn't just a hope. But the pledge is an actual contractual arrangement between the person who opens the packet and the provider of that seed, ensuring those freedoms. And so that that's really kind of a nice feeling that that can be perpetuated. So it's not just that the open source seed initiative hopes that you'll take these seeds and do (laughs) something altruistic with them. It's that by opening this packet, you express that you're sharing the intention of keeping them free and with free access. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, when we started, you know, Claire mentioned the long license. We, we were clearly hoping for something that was binding. Um, we decided not to go with that. We decided to go with the pledge. But the, the I think the good news is that the pledge does have some enforceability and that it can't just simply be disregarded that we are actually saying that when you open that packet, you have the right to do whatever you want and make sure that you don't restrict other people's use of it. And that seems to be able to hold up. What do you hope listeners will take away from this conversation? Well, for me, um, the trend in the seed industry has been unidirectional for the past 30 years towards much greater control over seeds. And certainly as the technologies have increased in complexity and in cost, there are some reasons why that has to have happened. But the message that I'm hoping a listener would receive is that there's actually a little bit more diversity in the seed system now than perhaps there had been. And even though Aussie is a relatively young organization, and even though 400-some varieties is not a huge slice of what's out there, this effort represents the introduction of a palette of diversity that wasn't present before that we hope can grow into the future. And so, you know, the the one-way directional control over seeds maybe has a few bright spots in it uh, in this way. Claire? Yeah, I think it gets back to one of the things that we were talking about, right, is just the more awareness of these issues, maybe be inspired to try some seed saving or some selection themselves if they're so inclined and have the resources to do so. And yeah, just to understand a little bit more about what the Open Source Seed Initiative is and why why we're here <laughs> and why we're doing this work. Yeah, and to Claire's point, just there, you know, um, we've had some wonderful conversations with people who have received these seeds from various channels and then get back to us with questions. I mean, one guy grew our lettuces, and then he wrote and said, how do you get seed from a lettuce? You know, which is a great question, but it is not apparent to everybody how lettuce becomes seed. And so 
we feel like in some ways we're it's it's democratizing this this uh this seed production and plant breeding practice that was normally you know very maybe obscure to people and brings it to them in a new way that is uh that is actually pretty exciting thank you both again so much for joining me today to talk about aussie it's been a really informative and enjoyable conversation Thank you, Rachel. You're, you, you asked really excellent questions, I have to say, and it was, it was really easy to talk with you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> We've been speaking today with Dr. Erwin Goldman and Dr. Claire Luby about the Open Source Seed Initiative. You can find more information about the Open Source Seed Initiative at osseeds.org, where you'll find our show notes along with the transcript of this conversation. The website also hosts the Freed Seed Database, where you can learn about the more than 400 varieties that have been pledged as open source, including the carrot populations that Claire talked about. There you'll find information about how to request seed if you've been inspired to start a carrot or other vegetable breeding project yourself. Let us know what you thought of the episode by tweeting at OSSeeds. You can find us and like the Open Source Seed Initiative on Facebook to join an online community of folks interested in the future of intellectual property in plants. If you'd like, you can give us a review on iTunes, which will help other potential listeners find us there. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevear. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, I'm your host, Rachel Holtengren, and this is Free the Seed.